0: Um, virtually, but um, it's great to great to meet you all and to see you. And it's wonderful to see that you're yeah, you clearly have such a great community where you are. Um, we're going today to take a look at a fairly short um, extract from uh, John's first letter. Um, so, if you have your your Bible, you might like to turn to it. First, First John, uh, chapter two. It's close to the end of chapter two. And we'll be reading from verse twenty-eight to verse three in chapter three. So, a short, short passage. Um, I'll just read it now, and then we'll we'll kind of look at the introduction and uh, and see and see where the Lord will lead us. First um, John chapter one verse twenty-eight. Now, little children, abide in Him so that when he appears, he may have, you, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone, everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will, be, we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, First John, the letter First John was written like many epistles in the New Testament, um, particularly a lot of Paul's epistles. It was written in response to heretical ideas which were infecting the church, to wrong ideas about who, specifically, who Christ was, and. The problem that many scholars believe John was writing to combat was the growing ideas of Gnosticism. Now Gnosticism was a heresy and was a kind of a a movement of thought which really started to become more identifiable in the second century but the seeds of Gnostic thought were there, were present in the first century as well. And this is what John is writing against. Now, what do we mean by by Gnosticism? Well, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And that's a very important concept in Gnosticism. And if you kind of look a little bit more generally at Greek thought, um, it's very unlike Jewish thinking and the sort of thinking that you would see, you would encounter in the Old Testament and indeed in the New Testament. In the Greek world, the Greek mind, existence was binary. It was dual. There was, on one hand, the physical world, which was corrupt, which was impure which was if you will sinful and there was the spiritual world which was pure and which emanated from god and was an expression of who god was and in the greek mind you could not have a convergence of the spiritual and the physical they always had to be kept separate and that's why if you look into 1 Corinthians, um, Paul says that the gospel to the Greeks is foolishness because Jesus is God who came in the flesh. And this thought was very much um, part of Gnosticism and part of the Gnostic heresy. So the idea was that you could have spiritual enlightenment spiritual secret knowledge, which would bring you to a state where you could communicate with God. But it didn't really matter how you lived in the physical world, because the two are separate. And again, this is very different to what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that how we live now has profound spiritual implications, and the spiritual and the physical are not separate, but they inform one another. And this is what Paul, sorry, what John was writing about here, and he was reminding those people who are reading it of the importance of living righteously, of living in a way which reflected the pure character of who God is. If you look later on in 1 John chapter 4, John talks about the character of the Antichrist, and he says the spirit of the Antichrist is that which denies that Jesus has come in the flesh. But the Spirit of God comprehends and acknowledges that Christ indeed has come in the flesh among us. So we believe as Christians that God became man in Jesus Christ, that he lived among us, that he's very concerned with how we live now and how our, our status as his sons should be reflected in how we live. So that's the reality, and that's <clears throat> the reality of Jesus' first coming when Jesus came as God incarnate to save us from our sin. But equally, and this is what John is emphasizing in this particular passage, it is the reality of his second coming. And John is writing here to um, encourage believers by pointing to Jesus' second coming. And using that as a way to give us confidence to live now for the Lord Jesus and to live in a way which is righteous and reflects God's character. So Christians must always as a principle be looking forward. We must always be looking forward to the day when Christ is to return. And Paul oh, sorry John is saying here that there are two ways that you can respond to Jesus Christ when he does return. And you can see here in verse 28 he says it is either with confidence or in shame. And <clears throat> as we go through John's John's writing generally and particularly John 1st John here this epistle you will find that John very often writes in terms of a binary distinction, a little bit different to the way the Greeks were thinking. But there is no gray area with John. John tells us, you know, you are either of the light or the darkness. You are either of the truth or you are of lies. You are either children of God or you are children of the devil. And here he's telling us, there's only one of two responses to Jesus when he comes again. You will either be able to look forward to his coming with confidence and be confident when he returns, or you will shrink back ashamed when Jesus returns. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. Now, When we look at these two types of people, those who are confident and those who will be ashamed, we want to think, I'd like to think, first of all, about what about those people who are going to be ashamed when Jesus returns? Because the particular word there, being ashamed, we meet it elsewhere in the New Testament. And we meet it very famously In Mark's Gospel, in Mark chapter 8, if you have your Bibles, we'll take a look at Mark chapter 8, because Mark writes very clearly here about being ashamed and not being ashamed, but particularly about being ashamed. So if you have your your Bibles there, turn to Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. And Jesus summoned the crowd together with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Being ashamed of Christ now is rather wanting to live for this world. Those who are unwilling to pick up their cross, those who are unwilling to deny themselves and follow him, are ultimately ashamed of Jesus and ashamed of his words. And Jesus says, in this adulterous and sinful generation. Adultery in the Bible is often linked to going after alternative gods going after alternative ways of worship, those which God has not recommended. That's certainly clear in the Old Testament where Israel is again and again accused of adultery. And people will go after, I think, almost anything else other than the Lord Jesus because they're ashamed of him and they're ashamed of his word and they're ashamed of his truth. And that is our normal human reaction to Jesus, unless God shows us his grace and God shows us his mercy, we will be ashamed of him. But Jesus says here, if you're ashamed of me now, I will be ashamed of you when I come again. And Jesus, again, is pointing to his return. He's saying, I'm coming, I'm returning, and if you don't acknowledge me in your lives, and if you go after other ways— of finding fulfillment, or other ways maybe of even being religious, then I will be ashamed of you when I return. And that shame is not just a kind of an embarrassment here with Jesus when he returns, but rather it is absolutely disowning people and completely turning them away. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, we're told at the, you know, when Jesus comes again, we're told of the um, the imagery of the sheep and the goats. And he says to the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So that is the substance of Jesus' shame. He will not acknowledge you before the Father. In fact, he will turn you away from him. Entirely. Now, if you are ashamed of Jesus now, then how much more will you feel shame when he returns? And John is reminding us here you can either be confident or you can be ashamed. But you will be ashamed then, not by Jesus but you will be ashamed of your inadequacy before Jesus and of your sin before the Lord Jesus. That's what will cause you that shame. Um, I was talking a few weeks ago to a friend of mine. It's a nice kind of illustration who who used to be involved in music quite a lot. And um, his band was invited one day to appear on a quite well-known TV show in the United Kingdom so he obviously made sure that when he was going on to perform on television live he got on the right gear I don't know if he went to a tailor he got a suit measured but he made sure that he looked as smart as possible and he thought you know he told me I was looking really good that night as I was in the television studios And he was walking down a corridor in the television studios when suddenly around the corner, a very well-known rock star started walking down the corridor to him. And he said, I was just absolutely taken aback because this guy, he looked like he was about seven feet tall. He was covered in jewels. He was wearing, you know, he was dressed like a king. And he was followed by this entourage of people around him as well. And it was just like he had come from a different planet. And my friend who had made the very best effort he could to look as good as he could under his, in his ability, was just blown away by this person. And he felt like a worm and he was completely humiliated in this man's presence. And, you know, if that can happen at the human level, imagine how you will feel when you have attempted to clothe yourself with your own righteousness, the filthy rags of your own righteousness that Paul speaks about. And you, on the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, are confronted with absolute holiness, the absolute personification of everything that is divine everything that is holy everything that is pure and you are left to your own righteousness and that's what it's going to be like but john wants us to be confident and he's saying here he's writing to us so that you're going to be confident actually when jesus returns so what grounds do we have to be confident before jesus at his return well, we know from Colossians chapter 1 that we have been, if we are believers, we have already been reconciled by Jesus' death in his fleshly body. And Paul talks about his fleshly death, what Jesus actually did, because he was incarnate in a real flesh and body, and he died for us. And in doing that, he achieved for us righteousness. We know the famous quotation from 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so we have this real status before God. If we are in Christ, we are righteous before God. And we can stand with confidence before him. But... That confidence grows, I believe, as we live out righteously now. And when he returns, we can stand with absolute confidence. How we live makes a difference. How we live makes a difference to our lives, to our confidence before God. John is saying here, if you look at at verse 28 again, he says, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence. Abide in him. Now, you'll probably remember from John chapter 15, John again writing, where Jesus talks about people abiding in him or remaining in him. It's the same word. it's um, It means the same thing. John chapter 15, verses 4 to 6. Jesus says to his disciples, Remain in me, or abide in me, and I in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can can you, unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding in in God is abiding in the Lord Jesus and it is resting in the reality that he provides everything we need, that he is our source of life. And when we trust in him for that and when we seek to live obediently to the Lord, then we will produce fruit. Because we must produce fruit, because if we are connected to the living vine, that's what will come. Life will come, and fruit will be produced. And the Christian's confidence in the world today, I think, is very much linked to our producing fruit as we produce fruit. And Paul talks in Galatians chapter 5, doesn't he, about the fruit of the Spirit— Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Probably all your children know that one. Um, As we produce this fruit, my children know it better than I did. But as we produce the fruit, we know and we can see that God's life is actually being reproduced in us. And as we see that, we grow in confidence. In second peter chapter one there's a wonderful passage that peter where peter describes a very similar list of expressions of christian living very similar to paul's list in galatians chapter five of things that you should be producing when you're a believer and when he comes to the end of the list he then makes this statement he says Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Our calling, our election, our righteousness is confirmed in our lives when we produce fruit. As we produce fruit, we get more and more confident in our standing before the Lord. It doesn't change our standing, but it changes our experience and our confidence now. But he says this, and I think it's wonderful that Peter says this, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Well, look at the life of Peter. You know, he was the one who denied Christ three times. He was the one who, in the book of Galatians, was a hypocrite. Paul had to confront him over his hypocrisy. But he's saying, you will never fall. Yes, you might stumble. Yes, there might be times where you mess up a bit, but you will never fall. And that's great confidence, I think. But if you look again at our righteous status and our confidence in that, in verse 1 here, First John chapter 3, we're given another reason to be confident. And John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. The reality of God's love is another reason for us to be confident today and to be confident when Jesus returns. It's an interesting phrase, actually, where John says, see how great a love. Some translations might be, what kind of love God has bestowed on us. Um, The original Greek word is potapos, which actually means, originally, of another country, from another country, otherworldly, foreign. The type of love that God has shown us is otherworldly. It's supernatural. And we know it's supernatural because he calls us children of God. Well, naturally, we're not children of God, are we? In Ephesians chapter 2, we learn that our natural state is that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We used to follow the prince of the power of the air satan used to be our father we were children not of god but children of wrath and paul reminds us of all those realities in the past in ephesians chapter 2 but because god's love is so strong is so otherworldly is so supernatural he has taken us from that position and he has made us children of god And John emphasizes it here. He says, We are called children of God, and such we are. That is what we are now. We've moved from being children of wrath to being children of God. This is not simply a title, it is a fact, it is a reality. Now, there's one word in there which I think is really important. And it's a word which demonstrates the power of God. And that is called. John says, we will be called children of God. That word is used very significantly in other places in scripture. In Romans chapter four, Paul is talking about the faith of Abraham. And he's reminding us, that you are not regenerated by your works, you are not regenerated by your physical inheritance, but rather you are made righteous by your faith. God's power working in us, making us righteous through faith. But one thing that Paul says here is that God gives life, in Romans chapter 4, he says, God gives life to the dead, and he calls into existence that which is not. God calls things that do not exist, and they become something. And we remember with Abraham, his great struggle was that he was so old that he could not have children. Neither could Sarah, or they would not be expected to because they were almost dead but God rather brought life into existence in that particular context. And equally, when God calls us children of God, he makes us something that we were not. He brings us into life by calling us into life. And in Romans chapter 8, we're told that those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he glorified. And he called us to be transformed into the image of his son. So when God calls us, and when God calls us children of God, he's calling us to be transformed from our old natures into new people, but also to come into the image of his son, to be transformed, to become more like Jesus Christ. And we become more like the Lord Jesus as we live in obedience to God from day to day. But also, us being like Jesus is going to have a great significance when he returns again. We're going to see that in a few minutes. Now, as we go through this short passage here in 1 John, we can find another reason for us to be confident before God and to be confident before Christ when he returns. And this actually may, at first blush, surprise you. This might be a little bit counterintuitive. But John says this, he says, for this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world not knowing us, that is the world not recognizing us as God, god's children the world not indeed paying much notice of us at all and the world thinking of christians as maybe being a bit fringe a bit lunatic a bit strange is actually a proof of our regenerated status is a proof that we are god's children Um, we may you know sometimes think and we may despair sometimes and look at the fact that The society that we live in no longer or very, very seldom recognizes Christian values. I think that's a reality. As we look in the society we're living in, um, it's turning increasingly away from God. And it's turning increasingly away from God's truth as being a foundation for how our laws should work and how we should live. And I probably don't need to tell you too much about that. It's it's pretty clear. And Christians may be tempted in such circumstances to become a little bit demoralized, to feel we're being sidelined, to feel that we have no influence in the culture because it no longer recognizes us or Scripture or the Lord. But when you think about it, that's really what we should expect, in a sense. Because when Jesus came, he came to his own, as John tells us in John chapter 1, and his own did not receive him. He came to a society which crucified him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, Paul writes that if the rulers of this age had understood who Christ was, they would not have crucified him. And the fact that they did shows so clearly that they were absolutely ignorant of who Jesus was, and therefore they rejected him. And so for us, if we're living in a world which rejects God's truth, sidelines and marginalizes Christians in, we'd say, the public square, We're not to become disheartened. We're not to worry about that because it's actually what we should really be expecting. Now, of course, we want to make God's word known. We want to make the gospel known. We want to tell as many people as we can about the hope that is within us and to give a reason for it. But we're not to become discouraged when very few people accept it and when it never becomes mainstream. and I also think that should maybe (coughs) keep us from wanting to perhaps use every possibility to become mainstream. I think maybe some Christians look around and they think we have to make the gospel more relevant to this world. We have to put it in terms (coughs) that's more acceptable to this world. Well, we don't. Because God has not told us that it's going to be acceptable or popular. Now, we want to express the gospel in ways that people will understand. Of course we do. We don't want to throw in unnecessary stumbling blocks. But neither do we want to become discouraged. So that's an encouragement to think again for us this morning. It is a counterintuitive encouragement, but it's encouragement nevertheless. Another encouragement is the present fact of who we are. So John says in verse 2, Beloved, now, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Now we are children of God. We have this reality of being God's children Why are we God's children? Because we have received his spirit. We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit that we received when we repented, when we turned to Christ. And we're also God's children by adoption. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, he says, we have received the spirit of adoption. So we are both regenerated and we are legally God's children. He has adopted us. He has taken us into his family. And we have this real status of God's children. So that's a confidence that we can have now and look forward to the future with confidence because we know that when Christ comes, he's coming for his brothers and sisters. Now, there's something really interesting here. And I think when you look at it, It actually, to me, demonstrates the authenticity of Scripture and the believability of Scripture. Because John says to us here, Beloved, we are children of God, we are now children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. John is saying, in the future, when Christ returns, when we are glorified, I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know what it's going to be entirely. And this is interesting. I was, I was just talking to a friend a couple of nights ago. Um, he has a PR company, and he's into PR, and we were talking about the Apostle Paul. And he has some, some knowledge of Scripture, but he was saying, you know, he thinks and he's wrong, in fact, but he thinks, his concept is, that the New Testament paints the Jews in a very dark way in saying that they were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion, because that would have made the message of the gospel more acceptable to pagan society. So his idea is basically, Paul wrote badly about the Jews, so that that he would have this good message and this more acceptable message for the pagan world. Now, obviously, in fact, that's wrong, and I was trying to remind him of of Romans 9-11. to But his idea was that Paul was a PR man, and he was trying to make an acceptable message. But if you look at what John's writing here, if you're a PR man, you're going to try to at least tell people a little bit about what they're looking forward to. You know, he says, You we have this great hope here, and now I'll paint you a picture of what it's going to look like. But he doesn't say that. He just says, We don't know what we will be like when he comes, but we know that we will be transformed into his image. And so to me, that is A very clear proof that John is telling us the truth here. He's not painting us a picture, he's not coming up with some kind of manipulated PR message that's going to be acceptable to people, but he's simply telling us what God has revealed to him. Now, believers are expected to walk by faith and As we look forward to Jesus returning, we are living in this world justified by faith. And that goes way back to the book of Genesis, doesn't it? Back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, where we're told that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So we don't know how it's going to be exactly when Jesus returns but we do know it's going to be glorious and we live now by faith in him and we express that faith through, through obedience. But this tension that we have here of living for the Lord and not knowing exactly what is going to come in the future is going to be resolved when Jesus does return. Look in verse 2 and the rest of verse 2 there. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. We will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. When Jesus returns... God's children will be completely transformed into the likeness of Christ. We will be glorified like, with him, and then we will see him as he is. And that's an encouragement for us now because we understand more about who Jesus is the more we become like him. And the more we obey him in this world, the more we live by faith, the more we seek to be obedient to God's commandments, the more we become like Jesus. And the more our character is changed into his. In Colossians chapter 3 verses 1 to 4, we're told, um, Paul reminds us, doesn't he, about the new reality that we have as believers. You might want to turn to that, actually. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Paul says, Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above, where Christ is, seated on the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are here on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul is reminding believers that we've been crucified with Christ, we've been raised with him. Our status now is as God's children. Christ is at God's right hand, and he's interceding for us there. So therefore, we're not to set our minds on the things on this earth, Unlike those people in Mark chapter 8, you know, focusing on this world. We're to focus rather on him and the fact that our life is hidden with Christ. So when he returns, when he returns and he is revealed, we will also be revealed as God's sons. So there is that growing in him, growing in his likeness now which means that we will be able to see him as he is when he returns and we will also be revealed as who we truly are that is God's children now when jesus comes the whole world will indeed see him but there are many people who will not just be ashamed of his coming but will be terrified at his coming And we can see that in Revelation chapter 6. And in Revelation chapter 6, John again is writing about those who have not recognized Christ. Those who did not see who he truly was when he came the first time. Revelation 6 verses 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the eminent people and the commanders and the wealthy and the strong... And every slave and free person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the sight of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand? That is the ultimate image of shame before the Lord when he returns. And that is how people will respond to him when they see him as he truly is, when they see him in his unrevealed or his completely revealed righteousness and power and holiness. But Christians can look forward to him with confidence. And John leaves us with an instruction, a very important instruction. He says... Everyone who has this hope, that is, looking forward to Christ's return, who has this hope fixed on him, purifies himself, just as he is pure. God wants a church, a bride, that is pure, that is holy before him. Now, we will, of course, like Peter, mess up. We will sometimes do things which we need to repent of, of course. But as we live in obedience to him, he purifies us. He is divine. We are the branches. He produces that fruit in us. He's looking for obedience. He's looking for a life now lived in this physical world which reflects the spiritual reality of who we are as his children. So I'd just like you to encourage, to encourage you to, to live for him now, to encourage you with these great promises which John has given us as we look even just into this week to serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for the great encouragement that it is to us. Lord, you remind us to look forward to the coming of Jesus to his return. And Father, we do look forward to it. And I pray now, Lord, that there is no one here who will be ashamed at his return, but Lord, that they may all look forward with confidence. And as we seek to be obedient to you in this day, as we seek to grow in you and to produce fruit, we just pray that we will remember that you are the vine, we are the branches. Without you, we can do nothing. Help us, Lord, this week. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.